Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History at Henry Zamoda. Danny Abdeljabar, what's up, man? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual, how about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. We got some exciting news today. I got a uh, email about I don't know three hours ago. Some some at some point today, I got an email congratulating me on uh, being the number one podcast in Azerbaijan. Wow, or not number one podcast in Azerbaijan? That's the, the news category too, right? The new in news number one news podcast in Azerbaijan, and I think That's, we're number wow. three in Turkmenistan, right? Or yeah, something like that. Something like that. So, um, wow, wow, number wow, wow. you're listening to the number one podcast in Azerbaijan. What a number feat. one Azeri. It's been podcast. two. It's been two years, and never knew <laughs> when we were going to get to the point where uh, you know we could focus we can we can move into bro history full time and make this a media empire and now we finally got the recognition we're there. We're um there. and the uh i guess the feedback from the public that we were looking for number yeah. one azerbaijan yeah. um how many downloads was that well uh 13 13,000 downloads in Azerbaijan. <laughs> Can you believe it? I just Th- want to thank all of our fans in Azerbaijan. Thir- 13, because we couldn't have that, gotten here without you. Is that 13,000 or no, 130,000? No, no, no. no, no, no. Confused. 13, one, three. One, Double digits, baby. One, Double one, digit three. numbers. Double digit one. download numbers. Yeah. Uh, 13, da- 13 downloads in 13 Azerbaijan. 13 downloads. Yep. I can't believe it. Uh, we are growing. What, what do you think? What, 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 I actually haven't looked at this, and we can do this live. But like, what? Which ones? Which episodes do you think the Azeris liked? I don't know. Um, so, with those sliding scales from Apple, um, the way it works is that they they take podcast they they rank podcasts based off like a weighted score. So um, you're not necessarily the most downloaded podcast, but if you're like getting a a, a spike then they'll put you on a list because at one point in in the u.s we were like number 30 in news and politics mm-hmm. um, which was actually really in the awesome. U, which, which was awesome but now we're not in that ranking anymore because we're um there's newer podcasts that they put on that list and um so i guess we're just getting that uh there, there's a spike in, in 13 people listening to bro history in azerbaijan so it's it's just doesn't know what to do with the algorithm like oh this new thing but um hottest yeah. new podcast in his version on bro history uh, yeah well um you want to get started into what we're talking about today <laughs> yeah all right so today we're talking about the civil war we were trying to 
I guess we're, we're trying to do an episode right now, and maybe this can go in a couple of different directions, but we wanted to concentrate on uh, two aspects. And uh, one of those aspects being the global impact of the, of the American Civil War, along with um, what were some of the major innovations that changed the world out of the Civil War. From there, I guess really just see where this episode takes us. Just duly noted, you know, neither of us are Civil War historians. However, these shows, as always, are meant to generate interest in the topics. They're not meant to be, uh, you know, um, authoritative uh, shows on these subjects. But I think you really can consider the American Civil War as the or one of the first modern wars, if not sure. the first modern war. It was the first war to take maximum advantage of the production of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And these increases in productivity made it possible to free large numbers of men for military service. The factory system and, and mass production, along with, with uh, technological and innovations and, and things like chemistry, led to really just an explosion in military technology. And it may have been the first war to pull the entire population of each combatant. So it was all out war. Like everyone was impacting the war effort. And these large conscript armies required the industrial and, and, and agriculture base to, to not only feed them, but to clothe them, to uh, supl supply them for combat. Therefore, the civilian population working in the factories, you know, the people working on the farms, the people supplying soldiers on the field, they, there's a merger between the civilian population and the war machine. And because of this merger uh, with the civilian population and the war machine, the production base and in the, in the civilian industrial manpower um, become legitimate military targets. Right. And you see that with the Union Army really just burning everything down in its path as they march to Georgia. Right. So it's like a very different war at this time. Like, you know, there's, there's gentlemen war, gentlemen's wars in Europe gentlemen's um, where people like agree on a time and, and there's like yeah. rules of war mm -hmm. and, um, you know, don't fight at night, no raids. Um, you know, we'll, we'll agree to do it on this date on this battlefield and people would come and watch. Um, and people did do that in the beginning of the war, but, um, they expected the union to, um, really just annihilate the Confederacy quickly. And then they ended up being, it's like, we need to get the fuck out of here. This is not going to happen. But I'm interested in, in, in talking about what was the, what was Europe's perspective on, on the war. And I find this really difficult to really understand your the the european perspective on the civil war because i've read different things like you know i've read things that say that um a lot of tactics were uh inspired by the civil war it was it was studied in great detail by different military commanders and, and other people and other and i've heard other sorts to say that wasn't the case at all they either did not really care too much about it or they just thought it was so kind of alien and exotic that it wasn't even uh, applicable to what they were doing at, the, at that time. Like 
the the U.S. the United States was a really big frontier. There were really large spaces, and in Europe, you know, you have a more condensed battlefield, uh, more so like one large army, and wars were decided by a couple of decisive uh, decisive wins. It wasn't like this system in in America where there's like these more so uh, a lot of medium sized armies fighting over huge frontiers and, and huge open spaces. And at this time, there's a lot of war going on in Europe as well. So between 1880, 1853 and 1871, there was the Crimean War, there was the Italian War, there's the Danish War, there's the Austro-Prussian War. There's a lot of violence going on. And there was already um, Europe, European military leaders, they already had plenty of food for thought as far as tactics right. um what really limited the relevance of of the civil war uh military experience was the recognition that the american political system and theater of operation was just vastly different from what they were doing in, all over in europe and both the union and confederacy they maintained a number of you know, these medium-sized armies and they were they were covering like really just large spans of territory and by by european standards um the force to space ratio in america was very very low in contrast in europe operations during this period were were were, were conducted in in just these small spaces by large armies and europeans had unique concerns that were produced by their own experiences and, and the American experience uh, really appeared not to provide them the answers to these questions, or at least not all of the answers to some of the questions they had regarding battlefield tactics. Nevertheless, uh, most European countries, they sent observers to America to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they did pick some stuff up. This is where my confusion really sets in on the topic. Um, you hear things like Prussian commanders were, you know, they went there and they were very unimpressed with the uh, kind of how green a lot of the officers were uh, in both the Union and the Confederacy. And that was the case, mm -hmm. especially on the Union side. You're dealing with a very green army on the Union side. So I'm sure they were just thinking this is a full off shit show. What can we really use from this? What can we take from this? Mm -hmm. Um but I'm sure they did learn military might required a sufficient industrial base and a, and a supply of manpower. And um, they had to have taken into account the need to have large reserve forces that could, that could mobilize on short notice along railways. Because the railway officer who could plan and, and implement deployment schedules really became the most valuable officer and professionalized general staffs in Europe. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would imagine would be the main takeaways of what they're, they're looking at. But still an answer I'm trying to search for, like what was the overall view? I'm sure it was a very mixed bag. And I think it really um, just came down to interests, you know, uh, and a lot of different European countries had different interests, specifically within um uh, you know, northern or southern like alliances. Like uh, I know, in, in, pretty soon we're going to talk a little bit about cotton and stuff like that. But a lot of 
you know, um, a lot of European countries depended on textiles, you know, cotton for textiles. You know, so they had a stake in the game and they might have had an opinion in one way. But at the same way, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking Britain in, uh, specifically, they didn't want the U.S. to invade Canada. Well, they didn't want the Union to invade Canada. So while they needed the textiles from the South, they didn't want their, you know, uh, colony in the North and their um, uh, area of free trade, uh, you know, to get basically ransacked by the Union Army. So they, they were kind of at a, like a weird standstill, right? Um, I, I, I think they, they, the British probably looked at the Civil War or, you know, the United States in general and, and engaging in, in, um, in warfare there again uh, as probably not, not a great idea. They probably thought of it as, as like a quagmire, almost like our Middle East conflicts today. Well, Britain, at that time, they were trying to pull out of America. America right. really was kind of like their Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. They'd already been kicked out of their colonies. Um, they were losing influence in their Canadian provinces. They were like, all right, let's focus on the Near East and the Far East and, and colonize these places with fertile fertile mm-hmm. grounds and right. natural resources. They were over and done with America at that point. The last thing that they wanted was to recognize the Confederate, to formally recognize the Confederacy as a formal state, and then have the uh, the Union go ahead and declare war and invade Canada. Exactly. Mm-hmm. However, um, Britain was out of all the European countries that were sending people to watch these battles go on. Um, Britain was definitely watching the closest. They had the the biggest invested interest. They had the highest chance of being drawn into the war for one reason or another. And they had strong economic ties with with the Confederacy and the British textile industry completely. It depended on southern cotton. Um, Cotton comprised of 59 percent of the exports out of the United States before the war. I think about 80 percent of the uh, the imported cotton from the. from the British textile industry was from was from the Confederacy. When the Union blockaded major southern ports, stalling the cotton economy, um, the British had to find other options. They were they were importing it from India in like the early 1800s, and that was interrupted by the Napoleonic Wars. Right. So, I mean, the war in 1812 was you know created a huge need for agricultural exports to Europe while they rebuilt after that war. You know. Like they were still writhing in pain from that. Like a lot of their their um, you know croplands and stuff like that were the battlefields. You were pointing out earlier, you know, kind of the differences in the in the scale of the warfare uh, of the United States versus Europe. Where you know in Europe, you know some some Europe some large European countries are smaller than you know medium sized states in the United States. You know, and when they would fight these battles, they'd fight these large scale battles on relatively small areas. Uh, which would really wreck the land, you know. Um, so as a result, there were a lot of European nations were, were relying on the United States for for agricultural exports. Cotton being one of the bigger ones, but also just wheat, you know, corn, shit like that, you know. Yeah, but it, cotton was was definitely number one. British textile was booming, and there was a really large demand of it. So they just just to, to kind of pull back. Um, so they're, they had a resort to uh, getting their cotton from, from Asia after Napoleonic Wars. The Union blockade on Confederate ports 
it didn't entirely prevent the cotton from leave, leaving the South. Like mm. the, when the Union blockaded the South, it was just their key port cities. Like um, they're, they're major cities on the coastline, but that's we're talking about miles and miles of coastline. There's no way that you can uh, enforce a blockade on. They can try. <laughs> they, they can try, but it's not yeah. gonna. It's not really going to be feasible. The only thing you can do is just. Um, um, try to prevent the cotton factors, like the people that would, um, the, the way that it was set up in the South was that they had like these, these, these informal, uh, kind of business relations between cotton producers along with, um, with factors, cotton factors, and the producers would sell the cotton to the factors and the factors would, would iron out the deals with, um, with the international business and they were very kind of informal type business relationships, like no contracts or anything like that. Right. It's just shaking you dump your shit. Right. You mm-hmm. dump your shit off and they give you money. Mm-hmm. So just preventing them from, from, uh, exporting would probably, what was their, their main goal. However, cotton was still getting out, but the price still driven up exponentially. Right. So, because there was an added risk. Like all that, added, even if it couldn't completely stop the cotton from going out, you know, just the risk that, you know, a vessel could be, you know, either taken, you know, a uh, uh, hostage or, or even scuttled, you know, and then there goes all your product. Like that risk alone increased it, increased the prices. And then just the decrease in, in, um, in the supply also increased the, the demand and therefore the price. And the, the shortfalls in in shipments from america um what it did is that it stimulated cotton production in places like india or egypt or in brazil and um all all these countries increased their production in order to meet british demands but number one was definitely egypt like they're the ones who picked up most of the slack Mm -hmm. um egypt had just freed themselves a couple of decades earlier before, before the civil war from the ottoman empire they stepped up and became the world's largest cotton producer during the times of the Civil War. Um, so, in 1861, they have they had only exported, I see, 600,000 canters of cotton. I think a canter is like a it's pound. A canter, oh, a, a canter is a pound. Cantars. A cantar is a pound. That's the unit of measurement that's used when measuring cotton. Um, but cantar. by 1863 it had more than doubled this to almost 1.3 million contours so more than a more than doubled the production of it in two years and that's huge that's that's huge and with their cotton revenue they started pursuing these massive public work programs like um like irrigation canals and the um their you know railroad systems and things like that, but the the king of uh, of Egypt or the Sultan of Egypt, uh, whatever the title was was called at the times, um, let's call him the Sultan of Egypt, uh, Ishmael. He was um, he was trying to he was kind of like the Shah of Iran. He was trying to turn Cairo into like a European city. Um, I think he called he wanted the the, the he coined the name Paris on the Nile. And um, in addition to the revenues, he was also taking out loans from the British, from British and French banks. 
And what happened is that when the Civil War was over, the price of cotton dropped. So Egypt was stuck in really bad debt. And they they went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And that's what eventually led to their colonization by the British. That's what happens so, when you're a one-trick pony economy, you know? Yeah, that, that's, that's what happens. Um, but it's kind of interesting that the Civil War, the American Civil War, led to um, the cotton boom in Egypt and their eventual colonization by the British. All in like a five-year span. <laughs> yeah, all. Well, the, the British started occupying um, Egypt, that, I think, in 1881. I okay, think so it was longer is. than five years, but still. It was longer than five years, or 1871. <laughs> it was within, it was either in the 1870s or 1880s. That's when there was never like a formal, they weren't like India where they were like considered a formal colony. It was just under occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget their exact um, exact title for, for how they labeled the differences. But vassal ship. A vassal <laughs> ship. But it, the British had control over the government. Like yeah. a lot of their uh, military uh, headquarters were based out of Egypt during World War I. Um, it was basically um, a British puppet state for. Is this for, before or after the suit, they, Is this before or after they stole all the mummies? I don't know what you're talking about. When the British takes all of the, you know, like Egyptian mummies and stuff like that and puts them in their own uh, museums. No, that might have been World War Two. I think I might be confusing the two. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, do you ever see? Um, you know Cleopatra's needle. No. What is that? It's an obelisk that um, I think it was built as around the Middle Kingdom of, of Egypt days. It's like 3,000 years ago? It was built probably around 3,000 years ago. I think it was built um, like when Ramses II was king. Mm-hmm. So that would be like, what, 1300 BC or something like that? Probably. Um, or, or later. Who knows? And... No, actually, yeah, probably somewhere between 2000 to 1000 BC, and um, basically, there's these there were these twin obelisks, and I think that they were in Cairo, but they were eventually moved to Alexandria, and um, they were the largest structures in all of Egypt. They were somehow purchased. I don't know the exact transactional history, but these obelisks, there there are these magnificent structures. One was sent to England, to London, mm-hmm. and I think. Either London took both, England took both of them and then sold one to the United States, uh, but the other one's in Central Park, New York. Oh, I didn't know that. The other one's in Central Park. It's actually really cool. I used to live really close to it and I used to see it all the time. Um, it is. How's it hold up not out like outside of the, <laughs> the desert? New York is know. rough, as is, New, as is London. It holds up fine. Yeah. It's protected. Everything in Central Park is, is kept pretty well um but under fun fact is that there's a time capsule underneath this obelisk so if you wanted to, to dig up underneath the obelisk you'll find a i think it was it was from 1870 and 1870 cons- uh, um consensus consensus bureau um um a a couple of webster dictionaries and i think uh copies of shakespeare are all in that time capsule so it was in the 1870s so that was that obelisk was built was brought here right after the civil war hmm. so i imagine that's something to do with debts 
with, with with Egypt Egyptian debts and how they got how these things made their way to one is in London and the so other. So maybe is I was right, maybe I was right about that. That's probably around the time when Britain started taking all of like the uh, ancient artifacts out of out of Egypt. Yeah, maybe. but that's that's interesting. I don't know why that popped up into my head right now, but <laughs> it is a very cool thing. If you're ever in Central Park in, in Manhattan, uh, see the obelisk. Um, it is a very cool site. But it, it wasn't just that. Um, speaking of colonization, because I, I want to go into this, the British were able to expand their imperial uh, <laughs> territories by a lot of the mil- a lot of the innovations that came out of the pressures of the Civil War. Um, for instance, the Maxim gun. <clears throat> so the Maxim gun. Um, you ever hear that saying? It's like whatever happens, we've got the maxim, <coughs> the, the maxim, and they have not. Yeah, you've heard that. Mm-hmm. It's like the number one weapon that is is associated with uh, the scramble of Africa, like with the Boer Wars, right? When they were using them to just kind of slaughter thousands of people, and that's the maxim gun is is a machine. Well, I don't know if it's technically a machine gun, but it is a, I don't know. Is it is it still hand crank? I forget. It's, I think it's hand it's hand cranked. I'm pretty sure it's hand cranked. Then technically, um, it's not a machine gun, but it's still a, like a repeating gun. So is it? It's it's a uh, its origins are in the, the Gatling gun that comes out right. of the Civil War. Like once they saw what one of those could do, and they're like, "Oh, we can use this to expand our imperial territory." Oh no! Actually, it's the first recoil-operated machine gun. It is actually okay. this. So uh, maybe we can jump around a little bit because I think a lot of people think of the Gatling gun as like the iconic gun um, for the Civil War, and they're not wrong. But it's what's interesting about it is that the Gatling gun wasn't actually used very much. Um, so it was definitely uh, the most su- successful of several types of these like rapid fire guns that were created shortly after the civil war. But uh, the Gatling gun was a a rap, technically a rapid firing multiple barrel firearm. So not machine gun, the machine and machine gun would imply that it is repeating automatically based on the recoil, um, the gases of the recoil. Uh, But it was invented in 1861 by Richard Jordan Gatling. Obviously that's where the name comes from. Um, it was basically, uh, if you've not seen a Gatling gun in your life, it's it's on it's like an artillery gun. It's it's on wheels, weighs like 171 pounds, measures about 42 inches, fires something between like 200 and 900 bullets per minute, which was extremely fast then. And it really just depends on like the configurations because they had a few different ones, depending on the size of the rounds that it was shooting and like the number of barrels that it had, which was between six and ten. But it had a bunch of these barrels kind of around a cylinder. And as you would crank this, uh, um, the crank, uh, what it would do is it would automatically like fire the one round from the uh, from the uh, the barrel that was directly, I think, on the 40 degree mark. Uh, and then as you turn it a little bit more, the next barrel would slide into place and then fire that one. Uh, but the barrel that you just shot, uh, it would drop in a brand new round from a gravity fed magazine at the top. Um, and it was pretty freaking cool uh, as far as like weapons go. And, and fun fact about it, uh, Richard Gatling, the guy who invented it, he actually hoped that making uh, such a ridiculously catastrophic weapon would convince people to stop doing war 
because it would be so ridiculously dangerous, but actually probably promoted more warfare. Um, but again, to kind of come back to the last point, you know, it wasn't extensively used in the Civil War. Like the armies of the North or the South didn't like buy a ton of these. They were personally purchased by specific generals uh, in the Union Army. Um, so 12 of them were purchased by some commanders uh, and like used in, in, in warfare there, but only 12. Um, one of them was used uh, during uh, in trenches during the Siege of St. Petersburg, uh, and that was in June 1864. Um, eight other Gatling guns were purchased uh, and were fitted onto gunboats. Uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, but that's like 20 guns. There's like 20 of them total that were like used that we know about. That's not a lot. <laughs> when you, In the grand scheme of things, in, in the ultimate carnage of a five-year war that is civil war, that's it wasn't really used. And the army really didn't, the northern army, I should say, didn't really accept the gun until after the war ended in 1866 when one of their sales reps from the Gatling company um, showed them an updated version that shot like something like 350 um, uh, rounds per minute. And they were like impressed and they're like, okay, cool. We'll get like a thousand of them. <laughs> um, but uh, Gatling guns were actually used less. Yeah, were, on, like, were, yeah, weren't they used to squell protesters? Yeah, yep. Yeah. So like it was less used on the battlefield and more used for the protesters in the North, which is crazy. Um, there was this one uh, situation where uh, in New York uh, in July uh, 17th, 1863, where evidently they used Gatling guns on some New York anti-draft rioters. Just unleashed Gatling guns on New Yorkers in, in 1863, which is fucking crazy. Um, and then uh, again, two were brought to um, Pennsylvania by a National Guard unit um, from Philadelphia to use against strikers in Pittsburgh. I don't know the date for that, but another crazy situation. The New York riots in uh, 1863 were <laughs> nuts. In insane. Nuts. Were absolutely insane. There yeah. are race riots. Mm -hmm. There are race riots between Irish immigrants and and uh, and, and black and, uh, and new blacks that migrated over there. A lot of the black population was pushed out of Manhattan into Brooklyn. Like, it was very violent. And there was... Mm -hmm. At the very least, over a hundred people were killed during those during those yeah. riots. Mm -hmm. But nuts. it was insane. Listen, man, Civil War is a complicated topic, and I know it's one of those things that people. It's one of the American topics that there's all types of. Uh, if you if you question the official narrative of the Civil War, you're immediately called either a um, lost cause sympathizer or you're called some type of like kooky revisionist um look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, 
Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I am not sympathetic towards the uh, Confederacy. Uh, you should listen like to our for, episode for on the origin. Listen to yeah, our episode on the origins of the Civil War. <laughs> but we're whatever, pretty we're pretty what, fair about it. I think. We're, yeah. I think we're pretty. I think it gives you a pretty good rundown of what you know the reasons why uh, the South succeeded and and why the North invaded. And it wasn't. And I'll just sum it up real quick. I, I don't believe the North invaded the South to um, end slavery. I think they did it to. Uh, I think there's unquestionably undoubt enough evidence to prove that they did not invade the south to uh end slavery um there is laws saying that if they didn't leave the union that they could keep all their slaves but the north i'm just the, the north the the union at that time was basically a dictatorship like america turned into a dictatorship for for four years under lincoln who was i mean he was a tyrant like he put journalists in jails he fired on civilians. He did a lot of bad things. The outcome of the Civil War with the ending of slavery was obviously a humongous accomplishment. However, it was a lot of bad shit was happening within within the Inclu- throwing in- journalists and including in using Gatling guns on including anti- using Gatling guns on <laughs> anti draft riders on anti draft riders. So ba- ba- just, la- last point, to... last point, last point on this Gatling gun, and then we can move on. Um, so, it, it the fact that it wasn't used very much in the battles is kind of weird. Um, there's a, a ton of reasons why they they probably didn't use it, but one of the main ones was that when you used this weapon, it, it sustained firing of like this black powder would cause this giant cloud of smoke, right? Like huge smoke cloud, which made you amazingly like visible. <laughs> like you could be a target for other artilleries, like cannons and stuff like that, or or um, snipers. I'm going to use that term liberally uh, because the guns weren't that great, but still. Um, and it's kind of hard to shoot people when you can't see shit, you know? So that's probably one of the bigger reasons why they didn't use it. And it wasn't until they started making smokeless powder, you know, uh, in the late 19th century that that these kinds of guns would be, like, useful. Um but they this was the progenitor right this was this was a gun that 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 was the progenitor to the maxim gun which is ultimately a you know uh the first machine gun as we learned just today and all and uh you know a lot of those guns got replaced by even lighter single man operated machine guns right uh but this changed how how warfare was done it you know no longer are people standing in nice gentlemen's warfare lines and saying, hey, you know, have a good fight out there and like, you know, just shoot one shot and like stand back, reload and have the second wave shoot. That wasn't going to happen anymore because of weapons like the Gatling gun. There were others that I want to talk about as well, but um, that, that completely changed 
the like how war was fought forever well let's talk about the the rifles because i think that's a huge that's a huge development in the war Mm -hmm. so a brief history of of rifles so they start emerging on the battlefield around the 1400s and the 1500s like the 14th and the 15th and 16th century muskets um, gunpowder is starts being used on the battlefield and it starts off with the ottoman empire using using them um during this period the 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 musket really revolutionized the role of infantry as we know it like muskets made it possible for uh, tightly packed infantry formations to engage cavalry Mm -hmm. and they could engage them without um, getting into close combat with them. However, on the negative side is that these things had a, an incredibly slow rate of fire, yep. which would require a, a pikeman to protect them. Mm-hmm. So the mix that you had these units in Europe at this time, um, like during periods of the of the Thirty Year War um, and all the religious wars in Europe, um, they had these mixed uh basic infantry structures that included just musketeers along with pikemen to protect them and that system lasted for about 200 years or so and before the musket or or the first muskets were matchlocks on the battlefield so you Mm -hmm. literally had a require a a matchlock is um you're required uh, a forked stand to hold the barrel of the of the gun and the riflemen yeah, like had monopons. to, mm-hmm. yeah, they had the riflemen had to ignite the powder with a, a handheld burning wick, <laughs> which, um, which obviously made it very difficult to aim. Like, imagine trying to shoot something while lighting it, light, like lighting the. It's like lighting a wick. like a bong it's while like you're trying to shoot somebody. You yeah. know, like it's weird. <laughs> so, yeah. the the muskets were firelock. And the, the fire lock used a trigger and it allowed riflemen to hold the, the, the weapon in both hands and just made it a lot easier to to aim and shoot and, and, and fire off more rounds within a minute. Or no, I don't even think they could fire a, a, more than one round. More of like an accuracy probably thing, yeah. Maybe a round every two to three minutes or so, but more of like an accuracy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of innovations with, with these muskets. Um, and you know all of these innovations related to uh, increasing their uh, mainly their rate of fire along with their their range because most of these muskets they're ineffective beyond 100 yards or so. Yeah, it's like a maximum of 300 feet for like a smooth bore musket, uh, and that's that's not very far, you know, <laughs> especially on a very large battlefield like in the United States during the Civil War. You know, so what what they ended up doing uh, that really revolutionized these muskets was the invention of boring, right? So they they would uh, excuse me, uh, rifling. They they would carve these grooves into the inside of the barrel, uh, and what that would do is it would cause the bullet to spin in the barrel as it was leaving the barrel, which would increase its rate of speed and increase the range at which it could hit. In some cases, up to 900 feet, which would have been three times longer than the smoothbore muskets. And 
and it made it super accurate too, up to like five times more accurate. So, you know, a single man uh, shooting um, a rifled rifle <laughs> uh, would be would be able to shoot three times farther and five times more accurate and a bit faster as well um, because of some of the you know innovations here. And one of the other innovations that kind of paired with the with the rifling in the barrel uh, was the mini ball. I think it's pronounced mini ball. Mine? Mini? I'm going to call it mini ball. I don't know how it's pronounced. Weird. Um, so mini ball had these little grooves, and mini balls look like what you would think a bullet would look like today. It wasn't like this round ball that they used to shoot out of muskets from before. Um, and the grooves on the end of it uh, would kind of grip the inside of that barrel so that it would rifle better, so it would spin better inside of the barrel. Uh, and... Uh, they, it made them really, really effective pair, like the, the mini ball and the, and the uh, rifling. Fun fact about the rifling, those grooves often had a whole lot of bacteria in it. And when a soldier got shot by a gun that had bacteria in the barrel, um, the mini ball would capture that bacteria and bring it with it. And if you got hit and you got infected, the only way to deal with that was amputation. So that actually increased, you know, amputations by quite a bit, just because the fucking guns were dirty. <laughs> yeah, that's something that's understated in that in that war. The amount of amputees and people mm -hmm. who lost limbs and legs and arms and and um, oftentimes just, just by getting hit by one one shot. That's it. Yeah, and it's 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 crazy. But a lot of medical achievements come out of the Civil War as well. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um. In addition, and just like things that you wouldn't really think about, like um, tinned, like uh, canned food comes out of the Civil War. Right. Well, I, I think um, Napoleon was using canned food for well, his, Napo his um, Napoleon army. was using it, but they weren't using it at the scale. Uh, no, of, no, of not, Civil, not even. Civil War. Yeah. Uh, to, to that point, with uh, our am ambulances uh, were created, army ambulances at least. Uh, Jonathan Letterman, uh, who was the medical director of the army, of the Potomac, he actually created the first tra organized transport of wounded people, uh, which we now know as ambulances. Uh, and it would basically consist of a group of soldiers who sucked, who were not like generally thought of as not being good, like unfit for fighting. <laughs> um, and they would move together in a division. They'd have a line surgeon, uh, two stretcher bearers, so guys carrying the stretcher, um, and one driver. Per ambulance and they would go to the field pick up the wounded and bring them back to you know like dressing stations uh and then eventually to field hospitals but that wasn't a thing before you know so now it is that's super interesting that's where it came from and not to mention just um just all right so the telegraph comes out <laughs> as right. well yeah let's so talk about the telegraph. There, there's so many there's so many like just um kind of amazing achieve technological achievements that happened during this period and under under these pressures or at the very least um a lot of things uh, staple things from the industrial revolution um are at least at the very least mass produced during this period so the telegraph yep yep and i think this is the this the telegraph had existed before you know like i think the earliest uh true quote telegraph was um, uh, an optical telegraph, technically, by Claude Chappé, French dude, in the late 18th century. 
was used in France and in Europe. Chape. 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 Um, and used heavily during the Napoleonic eras. Um, but the electric telegraph started to replace the optical telegraph in that mid-19th century area. And it was mostly uh, pioneered by Samuel Morse. Uh, with Morse code, hello, that's where that comes from. Um, it was a bit slower to like kick off in, in France uh, because they already had a pretty established like optical uh, telegraph system, but uh, the electric telegraphs were put into use with with uh, like a code that was compatible with the Schalp uh, tel um, optical telegraph, which made it just easier for them to transition into it. Um, and then eventually after that, uh, Morse code, the Morse system was developed, it was became the international standard by 1865, which would have been by the end of the American Civil War here, um, using like a modified Morse code that was developed in Germany. Um, but Morse code was nuts because of the infrastructure that they needed to develop in order to make like telegraphs work. So during the war, they built 15,000 miles of telegraph cable. And it was laid purely for military purposes. You know, um, basically they would station these wagons just behind the front lines with some wires and the wires would go back deeper into, you know, their own territory and they would relay a whole lot of information, right? It would allow commanders to like instantly communicate with, you know, um, the front lines uh, from their, you know, desks. I don't know where the hell they were. Um, Lincoln was famous for regularly visiting like a telegraph office every day to get like the latest news and give orders and stuff like that. But it would allow people to, you know, figure out troop movements, move things around, get quick battle results. It also enabled news sources to get to be able to report on the war really quickly. So I guess you can say this was the start of the mainstream media mob. <laughs> um, but the obvious benefits, I think, that we get out of, you know, um, the telegraph, you know, I think helped become the catalyst for the telegraph's rapid expansion. And in many ways, you can say that the telegraph kind of shrunk our world down by making communication over long distances much, much easier and much more pervasive. Um, some interesting facts. So from May 1st, 1861 to June 30th, 1865, the USMT or the United States Military Telegraph Service handled 6.5 million messages at a total cost for everything, all in for the construction and like operation and maintenance and stuff like that. Total cost of these 6.5 million messages was $2.65 million or 41 cents per message in their money. So these texts were pretty expensive. <laughs> Each of them cost a lot of money when you factor in all the all the stuff. But I mean, the, you know, the, this this stuff was super critical for for warfare, but you know, ultimately for communications all over the planet. You know, and that also changed, I think, a lot of the ways that we think about, you know, uh distance, right? We we effectively killed distance. I think all right, that's this is the major uh theme and, and topic i want to touch on because i think this could be the the, the biggest impact it, it connected the world to each other or with each other mm -hmm. using the railroad systems right and i guess in a um, military perspective um you're gonna you could say something like it increased the strategic capacity into where you're able to um, uh, put troops on the battlefield right. at a faster rate. 
But in a civilization, just like in a civilian life, you know, you're able to get to uh, from New York City to Memphis, Tennessee, and and not sure how long, probably about a day or less than a day or so. Mm-hmm. Usually that trip takes you uh, a couple of weeks on horseback or at the very least a week or so on horseback. Like right. the distances that are defeated are um, are, are crazy mm-hmm. when, you, when you really think about it. It's like a, a um, kind of a long battle that really separates societies from each other. Right. Um, because when you think about like, I was... Um, I drove from New York to Chicago a couple, uh, about two months ago, mm-hmm. and I was like, the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, holy shit, people fucking walk, like people <laughs> walk this, <laughs> walk this distance at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's probably on like a horse or some shit like that, but still on a horse, but still, or in a bandwagon, right? Um, but I was just in my head, I'm like, man, this is a 15 hour drive. And I can't believe that people actually did this trip without um, any type of automobile or... Did this trip at 15 miles an hour. Yeah. Because you basically are different countries. Like, that's the... um, Different worlds for for many, in many ways. Because when you think about it, like, the middle of our country, um, like places like South Dakota, um, they're beautiful scenically. However they're so remote you know like how do you get from a place like rapid city to anywhere else like where, like where's the closest airport you know um, we're i guess we're kind of lucky on the east coast where uh we can pretty much drive really anywhere within a couple of hours not or within maybe the longest distance would be going from you know new york to florida which would be about what a fifteen-hour car trip, but everywhere, everywhere else, it's a little longer. <coughs> Unless you're really flying and there's no traffic. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, railroads. Um, so r- both railroads and telegraphs, right? These are the things that like bridge, you know, the world together a lot. Before we move off of uh, um, uh, telegraphs, though, and and go onto the railroads, though, I do want to talk about the um, uh, uh, aerial reconnaissance because I found this pretty interesting. Uh, they were using balloons, both sides. They were using hot air balloons to survey uh, battlefields. And what was cool about it was that they would just string up some telegraphs in the basket of the hot air balloon. Hot air balloon would go up a couple miles off the, you know, to two, three miles off of the, uh, the battlefield. But they'd still be able to see it. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, the, the, the other army, yeah, they're over there. They're setting up camp. They're, you know, they got about 10,000 people or something like that. And they were able to just like tap in all of that information through the wire, get it all, all the information out. And it was funny because like there was literally no danger for these balloonists because first of all, they were kind of far away from the battlefields. But even if they were right there, like along the battlefields, the guns sucked so much uh, that they <laughs> they couldn't really do very much damage from that, that much distance. Um, but yeah, balloons. They, were using, they don't have anti-aircraft yet, unfortunately. Yeah, no. No, totally. Um, they don't have S three hundreds or Patriot <laughs> no. missile systems yet. Nope, nope. But the balloon corps was actually a like pretty much a civilian um, thing. They're, they weren't given military ranks because all the all the generals and people thought that they were silly. Um, <laughs> they were like, oh, just look at these balloon dudes, those balloon guys, Mister Balloon Hands, um, and. Uh, 
Oh yeah, the first. Uh, I'm Lieutenant General from the. I'm a Lieutenant General on the Balloon Force. <laughs> the Balloon Force. Hey, don't don't hate, man. We've got a balloon. We've got balloons still till today. Believe it or not, we still use balloons. There is a balloon called the Joint Land Attack Cruise Missile Defense Elevated Netted Sensor System. It cost 175 million dollars. I thought balloons were just meant to. Um accidentally take people into like fantasy world or something mm-hmm. like nah, you know, man gets caught in the wind and surveillance you imagination bl- land surveillance blimps are like really important especially during the uh the, the civil war but we, we apparently still have them 175 million dollar balloon of <laughs> 170 million dollar a piece yep 100 yeah and the name is ridiculous i'll say it again joint land attack cruise missile defense elevated netted sensor system huh Say that five times fast. Yeah. I wonder what it does. It it looks at stuff. It looks it looks at stuff. Yeah. It uh it it's a nice contract for who, you're, you're... who makes it Lockheed Martin. <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't look that part up. I'm sure they do no. I'm sure they do though. This is like the pinnacle of like the, the war industry when we can We need more balloons it. on the battle. We need to put um <laughs> Somebody in, someone's going to comment like, "These fucking balloons—they saved my life in Afghanistan." <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we've ever deployed balloons in Afghanistan, though. Um, but I know we still have them, and that was that, right. was that was popularized during the Civil War. So railroads, yeah, railroads. Um, well, I, I want to hammer on this one because this is this is big. Um, so in some sense, in, in the libertarian point of view, um, <laughs> you know, at least good libertarians, a lot of them aren't fond with a lot of the things that Lincoln did as far as, um, merging industry and state together. And that is one of the main critiques of his, of his presidency. And, um, a lot of people, I, I don't abide by the lost cause um type uh theories about the south succeeding for simply preserving jeffersonian republicanism um i think it had to do with a lot of their listen to our civil yeah, war episode, listen to the other podcast civil war, i don't want to get into all the reasons why the south <laughs> yeah. succeeded but it, it's complicated um but our uh, the libertarian critique is that Lincoln merged industry and state and state at the very least and mm-hmm. was um, subsidizing railroad companies um, at the expense he was picking winners and losers in, in the rail industry mm-hmm. so it won him um, the war though it was an example of cronyism that mm-hmm. um, people from you know someone from like the Mises Institute who's more uh, kind of hardcore Rothbardian w- would 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 write about that or would bring that up as as a fair, as a as a critique of him, but yeah, it did give them a tremendous advantage in the war through the railway system. Absolutely, yeah, and and actually, Lincoln um, himself was a former railroad lawyer. And He's a railroad he, lawyer. Yeah, he was a railroad lawyer. So that's obviously part of the cronies. That's part of the that's part of the the problem. That's where that 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 was part of the problem. But But the fact that he was a railroad lawyer did give him kind of an insight on how vital 
trains are and could be for moving people and supplies around quickly. And so railroads became vital strategic arteries for the war, right? And the capture of rail hubs was a huge priority for both sides of the war, right? Uh, although what I did find interesting in, in nerding out about like the technology here is that apparently track gauges, so the distance between uh, the two metal bars uh, on a rail weren't were different in a lot of time, uh, times, especially between North and South, but even sometimes in the North and in the South, they weren't always consistent. So like you couldn't ride certain trains in certain on certain tracks, which was interesting. Um, but um, that w- that happened in uh, World War Two. When, when they stand Germany them. and the Soviet mm-hmm. in the Soviet when when Germany invaded the Soviet Union when they got deep in there they couldn't transport troops on Soviet rail lines because they used different gauges right because they were different right but the, yeah. I mean these trains would go about twenty miles per hour which doesn't sound like a whole lot but when you're talking about moving an entire army right, right or a whole brigade from one place to another relatively quickly with like very you know very little cost and very effectively this was like the main way to get shit done. And they would pack these trains up. Like you would often see super overcrowding on these trains where the soldiers would be riding on top of, of like trains and stuff like that. But, you know, the North did had a pretty strong advantage. Uh, they had a superior infrastructure. They had over 20,000 miles of track. Uh, they had better equipment. And they had their own locomotive factory. Uh, whereas the South uh, just had 9,000 miles of track, so less than half. And they had recently converted their locomotive factory into an armaments factory. So probably a bad idea. Um, but that's that wasn't the whole story, right? Like, Because if you just look at it that way, it's, it's like, oh, well, that's why the North won. <clears throat> but actually, the South did better with railways in the beginning of the war than the North did. Uh, and that's because they didn't have this cronyism stuff going on. So they were able to, like, basically use you know, the trains to their advantage first uh, to transport soldiers and things like that to vital uh, vital areas. There's this one battle, uh, the Battle of Bull Run, the first Battle of Bull Run, where they actually moved half of the Confederate army via rail to help fight a single fucking battle, which is fucking phenomenal. Like, that wasn't a thing before. You don't move half of the entire army in one go. Like, that would have been a logistical nightmare. Um... But the reason why they were doing better, uh, despite having fewer railroads and fewer locomotives and fewer everything, honestly, was because the North was all mucked up with like private railroad owners that were super concerned about how much money they can charge the Union for using their railways and their locomotives rather than how they can help the war effort. So, I mean, there were some serious repercussions to this. Secretary of War, uh, Simon Cameron, was forced to resign when when it got it came out that he was basically profiting from the War Department contracts for railroad shipping. So almost this is like the infancy of. It's interesting that we talk about this just two episodes after we had Christian Sorensen on, where we we're talking about the the you know military industrial complex, and this is kind of like the like infancy there, right? This is like the this is it. No, this is this is the. One of the legacies of the Civil War is the merger of state and business. Mm-hmm. I think that, at least in America, like that, there there's a merger between industry and government that happens in this time period. Um, 
And I think it's one of the things that if you're studying the military industrial complex or things like that, I think this is a good starting point mm-hmm. to be like, hey, okay, I want to investigate like the relationships between business and state and, and um, uh, how how they impact each other. I think this is this is a the Civil War is the is the is a, is a good case study for, for this. Um but yeah, um, do you think that a lot of the logistics of being able to put, at, at, at least at the very beginning of the war, um, see the problem with that the North had is that their officers and their soldiers were green as cucumbers. You know, like <laughs> they, a lot of the veterans from the Mexican-American War were on the Confederate. A lot of the military commanders were um were from states like Virginia right. or North Carolina. Virginia being the most like um, Virginia is where most of the Confederate soldiers were from. Virginia, North Carolina, the vast majority of Confederate soldiers were from those two states. And um, do you think that them they had experience dealing with the logistical uh, movement of troops on trains prior to that? That's something I'm really not too no. sure about. <clears throat> no, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm, they're, they're... I'm fairly certain that pretty much everybody was like, "Oh, let's let's try and use this train instead. Let's see if it works." Yeah, I, I think that was like a hail mary play, and I think that the the Confederates did a pretty good job. And and I guess to your point, the reason why they were they figured it out quicker and better is because they had more seasoned, um, more seasoned generals and more seasoned commanders, um, but. At the end of the day, the North wasn't dumb either, and they just had way more everything, literally way more everything. They had a much more diverse economy, which you know obviously helped them to build the railroads in the first place. You know they manufactured ninety percent of all the goods in in the United States. You know they had seventeen times more textiles, thirty times more shoes and boots, thirteen times more iron, thirty-two times more firearms, and the North could move those via railway much easier because they had more than two times the amount of railways and they had a hell of a lot more locomotives to move it around so while they might have been a bit slower to the game um they ultimately beat them you know with just overwhelming numbers the u.s the 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 north had 419 locomotives and if if i'm not uh the I don't recall, I, didn't, I don't think I wrote this down, um, but I don't recall the number of Southern locomotives there were, but I can tell you that the number of um, locomotives that were produced in the South after the war started was zero. All of the locomotives that the South had and utilized in the war were locomotives that they had prior to. Or that they had captured from the north. Jesus. Yep. That's uh, that's that's pretty. That's low. Yeah. Can't get any lower than zero. <laughs> during, I guess during the conflict, they couldn't even lay out new tracks either. No, and it was incredibly expensive for them, right? So they, what did they do? They did four hundred miles of of um, uh, track annually, and the north was doing four thousand miles of track annually. The cost of uh, just making wheels for um, for cast iron wheels for the locomotives in the South was fifteen dollars in eighteen sixty one at the start of the war, 
um, that's $15 their time and money to $500 in 1865. So I don't actually know how much that translates to in today's money, but just think about it going from 15 bucks to 500 bucks to make wheels. They just did, they did not have the economy to support it. It just wasn't there. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, when you're a one trick pony economy, like the South was at that time, um, you're not going to last in a war of attrition against a, uh, comparatively to yourself has almost unlimited resources mm-hmm. um but let's go to the uh, let's talk about the uh naval ships because okay. that's a huge that's a huge development as well yeah for sure um, because this is something admittedly i i actually really don't know much about the um the naval battles of the confederate of, of the civil war I had a story, I think I told on this podcast, that I was in um, Portland, Maine, and I saw some plaque uh, talking about these naval battles that happened, I believe, uh, with Confederate uh, privateers um, mm-hmm. versus Union ships. And I was like, holy shit, I never knew any of this happened ever. Like, and I was like <laughs> mesmerized by this, this plaque in Portland. Um, but um, so... It, Let's talk about these ironclad warships that, that start coming around. Now, they're originally produced in England and sold to, to the North, or are they produced in America? I've always kind so, of so it. Um, I think that there's a bit of a misnomer. Like an ironclad is just a steam-powered warship that was yeah. protected by iron or steel armor plates, right? Yeah, it's not like a dreadnought. Yeah, it's not like a, like a mo- it's not like a model or anything like that. It was just yeah. like a like a class of ship, really. And I think, you know, at the start of the Civil War, the North had a, like, distinctly huge naval advantage uh, against the South because the, the North had a navy and the South didn't. Uh, the majority of the, um, the navy of the United States, they just decided to stick with the North, right? Um, and so the U.S. Navy at the time didn't have any... Uh, the Northern Navy didn't have any ironclads when the war started. The most powerful ships I think they had were like steam-powered frigates, but they were made of wood, right? And since, you know, since most of the Navy stayed with the North, the South had, again, to like get crafty. Uh, And so what they tried to do, they figured out, all right, well, let's start acquiring these ships or retrofitting these ironclad ships so they did purchase some from abroad uh, but the majority of them they actually just retrofitted their existing you know uh, boats with just armor on them Um, and in 1861 the confederate congress appropriated two million dollars for the purchase of ironclads um, from overseas Uh, and uh, basically in july and august they started getting to work on on just either constructing their own or or you know redoing the ones that they had you know and putting armor on those um basically it was like what was important about ironclads was that they exploited a huge vulnerability of wooden warships and that was that they're made of wood and so all you needed was explosive or like incendiary like flaming stuff you just burn them out of the sea right but if they've got armor and they're made of steel then you can't do that and also, one really interesting tactic that they would just that just came out of nowhere. Um, and actually, you can probably this was like an ancient tactic that was used by the Greeks 
with their with their um, longships just straight up ramming things. They just rammed stuff. Like that was like a, a finishing blow with the iron clouds was just ram the shit out of somebody. Because like these ships were much stronger than the wooden ships. It wasn't until after the first couple of clashes, you know, between wooden ships and, and you know, ironclads that I guess the North started realizing like, oh shit, we should probably also have this. <laughs> um, and that de facto replaced all wooden ships as like the strongest, you know, uh, in their fleets. And um, important things to know about these, that there were steam powered so they didn't have to worry about sails or like what direction the fucking wind was going, you know. Um, they just go, which was also another reason, coincidentally, why they were able to ram stuff because they just they just go. Um, and they also uh, were able to heavily exploit the use of explosive shells on their um, on their boats. And and uh, at least eight of these had Gatling guns on them, as I mentioned before. Um, so this was like a huge, huge step up for, for naval warfare. Um, you ever hear of, uh, Archimedes? Archimedes, Archimedes yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do, do you know the invention that he made? You what, the about fucking the, the laser beam? That he made? The yeah, laser he beam? Made la- <laughs> he made a laser beam. Um, yeah, focused this is back in Rome. Yeah. The, the ancient, like, uh, during the Punic Wars, the mm-hmm. first Punic Wars, he made a, like a, basically a, a laser that uh, it was a mirror that captured sunlight yeah it was a mirror that like, captured the sunlight you know, and you uh, like, put it on ships and they were supposed the to light on fire that was um, a thing <laughs> that, that was that was the thing I don't know if it ever worked <laughs> I, I honestly because <laughs> well, you had to have like the perfect like weather conditions and like get the angle of the sun right it's like hey wait stay right there while I focus the sun on your sails <laughs> I, oh, oh, sir, he's bluffed. Sorry. <laughs> um, um, all right. So, well, uh, so um, one interesting battle. Sorry, before we move off of that, uh, it was two ironclad ships. It was the USS USS Monitor and the CSS Virginia, which I think was probably the first uh, fight between two ironclad ships, um, and that was March 9th, eighteen sixty-two, uh, and apparently the Monitor whipped the shit out of the Merrimack. <laughs> so. And, and like a whole bunch of other Confederate steamers as well. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and um, a lot of these Confederate ships were like using like grape shot and stuff like that, right? Yep. Yeah, they were, they were like really interestingly pieced together. Well, that led them to make a lot of kind of um, at least be resourceful. Yes. Of a lot of the very unique things that they, things. they they did have. 
Um, cause they were the ones that first developed naval mines and, and, yep. and torpedoes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, um, torpedo, I'm going to use in like heavy quotes, pretty much anything that exploded was a torpedo. And the first torpedo that were made were like mostly just mines, what we would consider a mine. Um, but they sunk like something like 40, you know, uh, union ships using quote torpedoes, um, and but but th- those quote torpedoes uh, basically helped us to create landmines and grenades and use those in later wars. Like the idea behind them was like transmuted into the into landmines and grenades. Where where does um, the submarines come in? Oh, okay. We can talk about the submarines. So that's another crafty way that the South was trying to figure shit out. They were like, all right. Well, we can't beat all of these ships that the Union has, but if they can't see us, then they can't hurt us, right? So they made these submarines. One famously, most the, the first submarine to ever successfully uh, sink a ship was the CSS Huntley. Um, Huntley, excuse me. Uh, it was kind of a chop shop job. Uh, it had a lot of downsides. I think it sunk twice before they ever got it to work well. Um, Like, before they even got it to work, it was sinking. (laughs) So it was basically the F-35, right? It was falling out of the sky. In this case, it was sinking into the ocean. And it wasn't working. And then one day, uh, it got into a TIFF, the only TIFF that it was, um, that it was, you know, used successfully against, uh, against the USS, uh, geez, how do you say this? Housatonic? Housatonic? Something like that. USS Housatonic, uh, which was part of that naval blockade of Charleston, North Carolina, and they rammed it with a submarine, with a primitive submarine, the CSS Hunley, and it worked. It worked. Um, they were able to scuttle the ship. Um, they uh, it worked twice actually. Um, they accidentally did it once, uh, and then they did it again, and, and that's that's ultimately what what caused the the ship to sink. And it killed 12 people um, uh, on the ship. Oh, excuse me. The the USSS Hunley, uh, the CSS Hunley, the submarine, killed 12 people before it was successful in killing other people. Meaning it killed its own crew members because it sunk twice beforehand. Sorry, I was reading that wrong. The It killed five people on the Housatonic that day when it was actually successful. So it actually killed more people like on the wrong side than it did on the right side. And then on the way back, it never returned to base because it sank for the third and final time and it killed all of its crew again. <laughs> Did they ever find it? Uh, yeah, actually, they pulled it out of the water. Um, when did they pull it out of the water? I forgot about that. Uh, I don't recall. It was much, much later. Like, I want to say 1900-something. Okay, yeah. so it was decades after. Yeah, yeah, much much longer later that did they figure out where it was, and they were like, "Oh, I look. guess they didn't have they didn't have radar back then <laughs> to find these ships." Yeah. Um. So let's do, do you want to talk about um, you know, some maybe some of the less hostile uh, things, maybe something more so like um, because photography, sure, it wasn't just military equipment there was things that again you know we're talking overall inventions that were created um civil war photography comes out 
Um, huge. Yeah, it's huge event. I don't understand how camera works to this day. I just think it's magic. It, it is actually magic. It's still magic to me, and I did a ton of research on this. It's weird. I don't get it. Um, but I, I, to your point, you know, f- Civil War photography was the first successful war photography ever. In, in the past, what people, would, uh, do, what people would do is painters would literally go onto the battlefield with soldiers, and they would just watch... And then after the battle, they would go sit down and like paint a big, like a pretty picture of like what they saw, and that was like cute, right? Um, but what it failed to like do was capture the brutality of war. Like it, did, you weren't seeing paintings of like bloated corpses littering a battlefield, you know, or like shelled cities. That wasn't a thing. I mean, some painters, some war painters, tried to capture like the, you know. The, the the grotesqueness of war um i'm reminded of uh otto dix in world war one which is much later um but he's he makes a bunch of crazy paintings that show war as hell um but a painting doesn't do it like a photograph did and it wasn't as stark and, and stunning and just the act of this photo photography was just it was crazy um Photographs existed before the the um, the Civil War, but you know I think the process is so crazy that you know just to think about this happening shortly after a battle is kind of nuts. So what would happen is it, they would it was called a like wet plate photographic process. So they would take this collodion. Uh, I don't know what a collodion is, but it's it's a thing. It was like a like a um, like a chemical, if you will. And it was used to coat a plate of glass to make it like sensitive to light. Uh, and then in a dark room, like, you know, this is where they have like a little covering over the, the actual camera. Uh, the plate's immersed in silver nitrate. Um, and then they would take the cap off of the camera for two to three seconds. And that's how long the exposure was. So the light would come through, it would hit the glass. It's in this like chemical stew. And somehow magically... Uh, it would imprint onto the glass the image. I still don't get it. It's weird. It's chemistry. It's strange. The whole ordeal was pretty incredible uh, for for the time, but it was very difficult to do. And so you'll never see Civil War pictures that are um, candid. That's not a thing. Because it was it was too labor intensive and too difficult to do. So what they would do is they would come in after a battle and they would take a picture of the landscape, or they would take a um, uh, portraits of the victors, you know, or just of anyone, honestly. But those portraits and those landscapes were fucking gruesome, and it showed oh, yeah. people for the first time like this is what war is. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's real interesting because over, you, I mean, you can look up Civil War photos and and see basically a bunch of soldiers kind of standing over a destroyed battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very, very creepy. Honestly, they have a very eerie, eerie vibe to them. Um, and it, it's the same for World War One. Um, you ever see World War One photos? It's all just horror, mm-hmm. you know. 
because prior to you know in europe before world war one there had been a romantic view on on a lot of conflicts and um i'd imagine it's because you're not you don't have the um generations of people without limbs and who need uh plastic surgery i mean plastic surgery really kind of takes off after world war one because there's so many uh there's so many um um, mutilations who are mutilated <laughs> yeah but the same thing happened in in the u.s um because comparatively there is a so he, here's something i wanted to uh, br- uh bring up because i've actually found this this really um interesting study on on uh, lethality uh, lethality and casualties is the is the name of the study and um essentially um so beginning in 1860 um, the pace of weapons developed rapidly due to things that we just discussed, mass production, manufacturing, um, and also the, the distribution of technical journals, which goes underrated. Like a lot of these weapons were made possible because there was, um, because manufacturers were able to circulate different journals and there were scientific journals that, um, shared knowledge on you know the mechanics and the chemistry and how to make all this stuff and this results in weapons becoming the most lethal um ever in human history at that time um however uh this historian named tn dupay um, he calculated how the impact of increased killing power uh translates to battlefield casualties and he notes that the killing power of modern weapons compared to the weapons of antiquity increased by a factor of 2,000. So 2000. he's looking at modern wow. weapons. And this is, so we're, we're talking about 1950. This is mm-hmm. when I think the study was on in the 1950s. So weapons at that time period are 2,000. The deadliness of weapons from maces and pikes and swords and cavalry units um, they increased by a factor of 2,000. But he also notes that the uh, the dispersion of forces on the battlefield made possible by mechanization and the ability of fewer soldiers to deliver more firepower has increased by a factor of 4,000. So the ability to move troops around, um, the ability to... Um, not condense all your troops in one place and the result actually led to fewer casualties as a percentage of the committed forces on the battlefield Hmm. so this chart if we're on i can i'll try to superimpose it because i saw this chart it it goes back um from the six it starts in the 1600s and you could see that the percentage of casualties uh, go down or are going down pretty much every single year. So um, the study shows that as weapons become more destructive, um, armies react by adjusting their tactics to minimize potential targets, um, leading to a decline in battle casualties as weapons even get deadlier and deadlier. So during a battle in the 30 years war an average of the winner of the winner of the battle would have about 20 percent casualties 
and the loser would have about 30%. Mm. Now, this goes down year after year until the 1950s. Um, so this is taking account like the Korean War. That's like the last major conflict that this is studies. Um, so if you look at other wars, in, in World War One, it was about 12%. Uh, 12% um, and in World War Two, it was about 9%. So we're talking about how many casualties... How many of your committed force were casualties in that war? So World War One is twelve percent, World War Two is nine percent. So it goes down. Now in the chart, interestingly enough, there's these two spikes during this curve, and the one, the first spike is the Napoleonic War, which has between fifteen to twenty percent casualties, and mm -hmm. that's a large reason the way that Napoleon. Um, um, it's like formed, how he deployed his troops. Right? How he how he deploys his troops. He used column tactics, which reduced the ability to uh, of uh, of spreading forces around. But the Civil War is a huge spike as well. It's twenty one percent. It's twenty one to twenty three percent. So, meaning that there was if you were a um, soldier and a civil war army there was about a 21 percent chance that you would become a, a battlefield casualty so either dead or out of commission with a wound that would prevent you from going back into battlefield so as a as a, as a proportion of the people that were committed to war the civil war was by and large more deadly than world war one or other yes wars. Yes, for the portion. Now, of course, that the World War One and World War Two, obviously, the death count is much higher. Right. But the reason why it's so much higher is is because of the the armies. The nation state is an all time um, high at that time. Right. Like these these are very very powerful nation states with millions and millions of people, like, like millions of people in these armies, and they're wasting them like hell. Um, but just the, I don't know how the study applies to maybe like the Soviet Union forces in World War II. I would imagine that, um, the Soviet Russia tends to always have really, really high casualties. It's not always because of the war itself, but the ancillary, it, it's starvation. <laughs> yeah. Star, starvation and lack of resources, mm -hmm. like just troops going in and, and in World War One. There, there are stories about how. Um, troops would be sharing shoes like someone would uh, die a soldier would die and then um, the other soldier would take his shoes afterwards mm -hmm. or there'd be one rifle for two for two soldiers right, so right. meaning that one person would get shot and killed and the other person would take his rifle um, th things like that um, but the reason why the casualty were so high in the civil war wasn't because of we're talking about open battlefields so you would think that there would be a priority on uh, the dispersion of forces, so they're, they're not all in one place. But there were um, mass formations were thrown against defensive positions frequently during the war, mm. and things became meat grinders really quickly. So it was unique in that setting and in, in, in its deadliness. Um, and that's why the casualty rate was, was, uh, was, was so high because hundreds of thousands of 
if you include both south and the north, we're, we're talking about uh, around 700,000 dead in that war. Mm-hmm. And the United States is still not really a nation state yet. Like, it is a nation state, but... Fledgling it's not, nation state. It's a, it's a, young, it's a young nation state. Right. Um, it's not like a powerhouse nation state like in Europe. It's um, so it's it's pretty astonishing to kind of look at those uh, at those numbers and and uh, right, well, and, to, and put to, it into context to kind of relate that back to the previous thing that we were talking about uh, with photography. You know, we you just accurately described how ridiculously brutal it was, and now we have a method to show people exactly how brutal it was. Yeah, it's um, it was it was hell. It, it certainly it was uh, just an awful awful thing. And I just want to add, I kind of I, we were talking before this podcast. We're at a hour and a half right now, so I think we can yeah, start we can wrapping things yeah. up. But um, you know, people are always talking about civil war in America. There's gonna be a new civil war, and I always just roll my eyes yeah. whenever I hear that. Nobody in this country wants to do that. Not even close. Nobody is thinking about grabbing their rifle and uh, engaging in some type of warfare against another American. And if they are thinking, they're not thinking hard over enough about over it. what asshole is in the White House? <laughs> so like, so it's um. I just think it's uh, a lot of LARPing when people talk about yep. Civil War, man. Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't want to live in the conditions of uh, sleeping outside and having your family killed and all these hor- horrible things that happen with, with, when societies go to war. Um, all right. That's all I have to say. Um, in conclusion... The Civil War was a very important part of history, and it has impacted not only the United States but the rest of the world. There, that that would be the last sentence in my in my thesis paper. I love it. In in conclusion. In conclusion. Um. All right, man. Well, all right, let's that's, wrap. That's, let's, a, that's let's... a that's a great place to stop it. There, there was plenty of other, right. like like this was not an exhaustive like you know list and hopefully this you know interested you enough to do more research and there's plenty more cool guns and you know vehicles and random technologies that were created that we probably could have talked about as well and if you like this one this much maybe we'll do it again and we'll do more uh just let us know um great way to to do that would be you know if you're watching on youtube in the comment section there or uh if you're listening uh on apple podcast give us a uh five star rating and a and a, and a subscribe because that that helps us the most to do what we do best and uh you know climb to the top echelons of the azari podcasting world yeah we ha- we're, we're hot right now we want to help us continue to stay on top of azerbaijan <laughs> um radio uh azerbaijan uh podcast uh, chart right? ch- podcast charts so make sure that you rate and review the podcast rate and review the podcast it is the number one way to help us grow this show uh, we're almost at 400 ratings so it seems like just yesterday i was annoying you to get us to 100 
So mm-hmm. uh, rating the podcast does a lot for it. Rate and review the show if you're on Apple. Um, if you also would like to further support us, we have a Patreon. Um, the Patreon, we sometimes release some content, early content, some early episodes, mm-hmm. uh, and some additional additional stuff. Uh, but the real cool thing is our Slack. Um, so you can join our Patreon. You get access to our Slack account. And the Slack account is just a fun way for people to talk and chat and, and uh, argue and share stories and stuff like that. I It's really fun. I'm really happy we started this. Mm-hmm. And we have a great group of guys who are, and gals who are in the Slack um, talking. And it's, it's a fun thing. So join the Slack uh, by supporting us on Patreon. And that's all I have to plug in right now. All right. Peace, I guess, right? Peace. (laughs) That was the most awkward ending ever. All right, peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.